This podcast is for information only and should not be considered legal advice. There is no representation that the legal services to be performed by LOCA are better than the services of other attorneys. There is no guarantee of the outcome. Success is rendered on a case-by-case basis. Blind Justice Podcast. College and universities back in session. And you may have gotten into a bit of trouble at school. Now, you think you can handle it, but you may be surprised to know that you need a lawyer. Too many students discover that what they thought was not a big deal turns into a life-altering event. Students who thought they could work it out with their schools are being expelled, suspended, or placed on probation. This podcast will discuss those issues, tell you where to find help, and explain how the system works. Now, as we said in our first episode. This is our first foray into podcasting, so forgive us if we make a mistake or two as we figure out this process. You can email comments and suggestions to me at timothymarkley at kaltmanlaw.com. Now, joining me today is Keith Altman. He is the founder of K. Altman Law. He's a national leader in student defense with an extensive knowledge of educational issues. He has helped numerous students deal with and overcome their disputes with schools, colleges, and universities. Keith, welcome to the podcast. And before we jump into some specifics, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and give us a little background? Sure. Uh, I went to school, I was an astrophysics major. Some people say they took up space. I really took up space. Uh, I was also a theater minor, and uh, which was kind of an interesting combination. I began working in Uh, complex litigation and document imaging back in the early uh, 1990s. From there, I developed my, uh, developed the document databases for several major litigations. I decided to uh, get a law degree myself, which I did uh, in about 2008. I've been practicing actively since then. Uh, I had the pleasure and been blessed to work with some of the finest lawyers in the land on some important litigation, some of which have been national news. And uh, about two years ago, I began diving in heavily into the student discipline area and have spoken to about 2,000 students since then on various different kinds of issues and have been able to develop a pretty good understanding of how the uh, student discipline process works and how to help students out. Why is this the Legally Blind Justice podcast? Can you give us a little uh, insight into the name? Sure. Um, it turns out that I am legally blind. Uh, I have very, very poor vision. I'm not completely blind. This is, was rather sudden and catastrophic in about the last year. I went to bed one night with perfect vision in my right eye and woke up the next morning with my vision completely destroyed. And then it hit my left eye a little later in 2021. So. As of right now, I can um, just barely read. Now, once one would ask, how do you continue practicing as a lawyer when you pretty much can't see? And the answer is with a wonderful team of support uh, to to work with me. uh, We I think we have adapted the way the practice works to support my vision issues. We have um, uh, I did a jury trial back in April. Uh, which was essentially, uh, I was blind, could not see the jurors' faces. But nevertheless, we were able to 
um, try the case. And right now we are fully functional and um, there's some wonderful inspiration. For example, um, Justice Ricky Bernstein of the Michigan Supreme Court has been completely blind his entire life. And I've got, had the pleasure of meeting with him and, and I know him and he is very supportive of me. And there are several other issues out there. So we thought that uh, the phrase legally blind justice would kind of uh, lay that out for everybody. And, and just as uh, people have been inspirational to me in getting through my difficulties, I hope that I can be inspirational to others that absolutely you can be a lawyer and be essentially blind. And, you know, it's just a question of reconfiguring how you think about things. All right. Thanks for your willingness to share that story. So you've been doing this for a while. What are the most common mistakes students make in college that gets them into trouble? First is when you do get when you do get into trouble, the school is not your friend. They may seem very cordial and very friendly. You may have an academic integrity officer. Um, they're there to do a job, and their job is to clear matters. And just because they are very nice to you doesn't mean they're really looking out for your best interests. So one of the most common mistakes is just thinking that uh, this is a, to just cooperate with everything and not really paying attention to what's going on. Another very common mistake is to downplay how serious these matters are. These matters can become very serious. And if there's more than one incident over time, they become progressively more and more serious. And so accepting responsibility for something that you didn't do, thinking that it's not that big a deal can really lead to severe problems in the future. Our philosophy is that if you have engaged in some kind of wrongful conduct, then you accept responsibility and try to negotiate the best possible outcome. And if you didn't do the conduct, you fight it because to just simply accept what appears to be a minor punishment, uh, I can't tell you how many times has led to serious problems. So what are the areas that kids, that your practice sees that they get into trouble the most? Well, there are several different areas that, that come up frequently. Uh, one is, let's call it academic dishonesty. That's where the student is accused of cheating or plagiarism uh, or self-plagiarism even. And these are incidents where um, the student may have uh, used unapproved resources or they may have copied or collaborated with another student. And one of the concerning trends that we see is what we'll call auto adjudication, where the school has some kind of automated system for detecting what they believe is plagiarism, which is helpful to identify possible plagiarism, but should not be relied upon by the uh, by the school in terms of an absolute determination. It really does take somebody to sit and look over the situation. And we see, uh, unfortunately, that many professors and teachers are not willing to invest the time to understand what may have happened there, to understand or consider why a student may have cheated in the first place. I mean, why would a student who's been playing straight A's all of a sudden decide to cheat? It's just not very likely to have happened. So that's academic dishonesty. Another area that we see fairly frequently is what we'll call failure to progress or, or where you essentially flunk out of school. Um, you have you have uh, don't make the grades. You're having trouble. And uh, eventually you get put on probation and then maybe you get dismissed from the school for failure to make the grades. 
Now, the side issue with that that happens very often is students who have disabilities where they don't request accommodations from the school, or even if they requested accommodations, they don't receive the accommodations that they need or that they're entitled to. This is very, very common. And uh, while a student may for a while think they're okay and they don't need their accommodations, uh, there often comes a time where there's a change in the curriculum where all of a sudden this becomes a crisis. And then another very significant issue that we face is, is Title IX slash sexual harassment type situations. And this is where a student is accused of um, either physical contact, sexual assault uh, with another student, or they are uh, 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 harassing or stalking. And, you know, what we see all too often is that kids, when they first go off to school, you know, often don't have it all nailed of how to conduct themselves, and it is not uncommon for a student to get themselves into trouble. And, and these can be very, very serious situations. But so I've gotten myself into trouble. Do I really need a lawyer to help me through these processes? They sound, some of them sound pretty straightforward. What you really need is somebody who understands educa the educational process. We also happen to be lawyers, but we have a fabulous team of people who are educators, um, experts in the field, and it's it's the combination of uh, of that that brings the kind of support to the table that you really need. Uh, it may seem like a, a simple test, but it is not. And the consequences of being found responsible for these allocations, particularly Title IX, can be life altering. If you get found responsible for Title IX violation involving sexual conduct. Uh, you know, sexual assault, you could very easily be expelled from school and then it can be all but impossible for you to get a, a higher education at that point. So these matters are no joke. They're not to be trifled with. And uh, you really need to make sure that you're working with a team that not only understands um, the law, but also understands education and the issues and how the whole process works. All right, can you give us an example of where someone came to you and you got them an outcome they most likely would not have got on their own? Well, sure. We had a student who uh, was accused of academic dishonesty. It was very threadbare, the allegations, but he was found responsible on very shaky grounds. Um, he decided to change schools because uh, he didn't want to be part of that situation and came to us in an attempt to get his tuition back because effectively the two years he had already invested um, were lost and he had to start over again. So we were able to work with him and we were able to get the school to not only cover um, the tuition, uh, refund the tuition, but to pay um, the fees that he incurred in having us assist him. And that's probably something that would have been very difficult, if not impossible for them to try to do on their own. So one area you specialize in is, is Title IX, and you talked a little bit about it earlier, but what is Title IX, and what are some of the landmines that you see out there when, when dealing with Title IX cases? Title IX matters is, is a federal law, it's under the Education Act, which basically prohibits um, two kinds of conduct, uh, gender-based discrimination. Um, so for example, you see this often come up in sports, but the other more common situation with respect to students is where a student is accused of sexual harassment, sexual assault, stalking, 
uh, anything that potentially involves of a sexual nature. Um, in this day and age, it does not have to be male, male and female. It could be female, female, male, male. All iterations are possible. In a Title IX manner, um, the respondent, the person who's been accused, will receive a notification or is supposed to anyway, and this is an important issue um, to talk about, where sometimes the school shortcuts its obligations and its processes. In any event, um, they'll receive notice of an allegation. It has to give them the who, what, when, and where of what happened, the date, with whom, exactly the conduct that is alleged, sufficient detail to put you on notice as to what happened. Once that happens, then the school will conduct an investigation where they'll interview witnesses. They will um, review all the evidence, and then an investigator will come out with a draft report along with evidence for parties to review. There'll be an evidence review. That information will be considered by the investigator who then make um, issue a final report. And the investigator is not supposed to make any kind of factual determinations but they are required to assess whether the allegations, if they were true, constitute a Title IX violation. If they don't, then the matter must be dismissed. Uh, if the matter is not dismissed, then it'll proceed to a hearing, which is kind of a bit like a trial. There'll be opening statements, then the complainant and the respondent will be uh, cross-examined and, and examined, and then any witnesses, and then a determination will be made. So the Title IX process is, is somewhat set um, by federal law, though there is room for the schools to implement their own little uh, procedures. But as I said before, Title IX is definitely no joke. You do not want to be going into a Title matter by, IX matter by yourself. Um, very, very bad things can come out of that. And how the investigation, and, and sometimes we see where Students have tried to go through the investigation themselves, and then um, the investigation suggests that there should be a hearing, and then they get to the hearing, and they've already set a very bad table uh, beforehand, and we have to pick up the pieces during the hearing. That's just not a place that you want to start. So it really is very, very important with Title IX. Number one, when you receive that notification, you are entitled to have an advisor with you every step of the way, every meeting, every call. Take advantage of that. Do not try to do the interview yourself thinking that you can handle that because that's when uh, that's when things go wrong very quickly. Now, some schools um, will give you an advisor. Do you recommend using that advisor? Well, it's a bit like using the public defender in a criminal proceeding, but much worse, at least a public defender, you know they went to law school and got a law license. A Title IX advisor that the school gives you, you have no guarantee that they have anything more than a few, a few hours of training. And I will tell you that when you get to, um, if you get to a hearing, having an advisor that is skilled in examining the opposing party is just, is, is just critical. I can't tell you. Uh, how important it is to make sure that um, your credibility is preserved as uh, you know, and that the opposing party's credibility is damaged. And that's something that takes a lot of art and skill and not something you want to rely upon with a, a an advisor who's never done that before. So a lot of these come down to he said, she said. So what's the standard 
for evaluating that. In, in Title IX matters, the, the burden of proof is preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not. It is not beyond a reasonable doubt like in a criminal proceeding. It's much, much lower. The second issue is that the normal rules of evidence do not apply. In the courts, there's very specific rules of how evidence can come in and can be considered. There are no rules when it comes to a Title IX or even a, a student uh, a disciplinary matter. They can look at any evidence that they want, and so, but it becomes important to be able to characterize and place that evidence into context even when it comes in. And yes, on nothing more than a he said, she said, you can be found responsible. Um, and because of that, it becomes critical to establish your credibility and show that the other person is not credible. And that's the only way to win a Title IX matter. So that's where um, the cross-examination during the, during the hearings becomes absolutely critical. All right. We have covered a lot of issues related to student discipline, but that's not the only area you cover. You do some civil rights work. And one of the interesting cases you're working on now is Chris Vaughn. We're going to do a, an in-depth session on Chris Vaughn, but can you just give us sort of a, a quick overview of what that case entails? Sure. In, in 2007, unfortunately, Mr. Vaughn was found um, next to his SUV, and inside the SUV was his wife and three children. The wife was shot dead in the passenger seat, and three children were shot, shot dead in the back seat. And uh, shortly thereafter, Mr. Vaughn was charged with the murders. At the time, he was subject to the death penalty in Illinois under the death penalty statute. A death penalty defendant was entitled to unlimited funds for their defense, best lawyers, best experts. I was actually an expert in the matter um, at the time. Uh, the death penalty was abolished in Illinois, and Mr. Vaughn's defense got pulled out from under him. Uh, as a result of that, the public defender who then defended him really did a, you know, a, uh, a, a minimal at best job at defending him. Uh, in the trial, there were 90 witnesses and 700 exhibits presented. Mr. Vaughn was convicted in less than one hour of jury deliberation. Um, this case has haunted me for years. Um, not all that long ago, I was contacted by some people who were working with Chris and asked me if I would assist in trying to get him out of jail. Um, I have always known, it turns out that his wife, uh, Kimberly, was on a prescription drug called Topamax, topiramate, which is known to cause negative mood and behavioral disturbances. And she had just had a dosage change in the few days before the incident, and her behavior was becoming more and more erratic. Um, leading up to the incident, and is my belief, and has always been my belief, that um, Kimberly uh, shot the three kids, shot her husband twice, not fatally. He survived, and then killed herself. And according to the police, Chris staged the um, staged the scene to make it look like Kimberly did the uh, murders. Uh, I'm an expert in pharmacovigilance and safety surveillance, and in fact, the topiramate label has a warning for suicidal behavior, which was as a result of my efforts. So I've had a lot of knowledge about that drug. And so we are actively working on trying to get Chris out of jail at this time. All right, I look forward to digging into that one a little bit deeper later into the, into the season. 
I want to thank you for spending a few minutes with us today discussing these issues. And as we grow this podcast, we will dig deeper into these topics and share other areas of the legal world that we think will be of interest to you. So, Keith, again, thank you for being with us. We look forward to bringing you back to discuss these issues in more detail later. And finally, if you get into trouble, the school and university has complex rules, policies, and procedures to govern the process. They have access to a large legal staff to advise them, and you should as well. So thank you for listening to the Legally Blind Justice podcast. If you have a legal question, give us a call at 1-888-984-1341 or check us out on our website at kaltmanlaw.com.